This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. Hello, everyone, and welcome into the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. So glad to have you joining in this growing community. You know, to say teens in foster care who are pregnant or expecting, along with those who are already parents, are an overlooked group, well, that would be a false statement. To say there's an opportunity and even a pressing need to serve them better is arguably more accurate. And that's what this episode of the Information Gateway podcast focuses on. Tom Oates with you once again. And with states and jurisdictions developing their Title IV-E prevention plans to take advantage of the Family First Prevention Services Act, there's a bit more attention being paid to older youth in foster care who are either parents or expecting. And that includes fathers too. Now to some agencies, that means trying to get a grasp on where to even begin. For others, it's how to improve services or leverage evidence-based programs. There's a lot to unpack because you're dealing with all the challenges about being a parent and all the challenges about being a young person navigating the foster care system and facing life beyond it. So today we're talking with Alexandra Citrin, a senior associate with the Center for the Study of Social Policy, and she focuses on child welfare, finance reform, health care, and immigration policy. And also, Jeanette Pye Espinosa. She is the president of National Crittenden, which works via advocacy and capacity building to create systemic change that improve the lives of young women. Both contributed to the specific provisions in the Family First Law about pregnant, expecting, and parenting teens in foster care. So we talk about the twofold impact working specifically with this group can have, the initial approaches states and jurisdictions can take to assess their current environment and how they can improve their support to these young people, the challenges of selecting programs that show promise but may not be included in the Title IV-E clearinghouse, and maybe most important, how to shift away from the labels or stigma that caseworkers and even foster parents may bring with them when working with pregnant expecting or parenting teens. It's a great conversation. We're glad to be able to share this with you. Lots of resources to follow as well, and we'll point you to those at the end of the episode. But right now, Alex Citrin, Jeanette Pye Espinosa, right here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Alex and Jeanette, welcome into the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having us. Well, I appreciate this because at least... Um, for those who are maybe on the outside of child welfare or have a connection to it, the thought of expecting and parenting teens appears to be kind of a small group amongst the children, youth, and families involved in the child welfare system. So I'd like you to just kind of bring us all back and explain the crucial need and value for supporting this group, the expecting and parenting teens uh, that are in foster care. Well, I think to start out, I think I would say, I'm not sure that we know the actual numbers, right, of expectant and parenting youth that are in foster care. I also think we've, we've never really asked how many of the youth that end up, the children and youth that end up in the system come from families where parents were young when they were born. 
I think we'd likely find that they are higher than we think. And so um, I think just getting a good grasp on the data and working hard to disrupt those cycles will help reduce the number of children coming into the system. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, many systems actually don't track this data very well. So while we have anecdotal research that shows us that the proportion of teen pregnancy in foster care is uh, disproportionately high compared to the normal population, um, we don't do a great job of tracking it. And that includes tracking fathers, young fathers in care. Um, but I think also just to add on to this, uh, that, I think an important reason that we need to really focus on this group is that the, these are young people who are at a critical point in their life in terms of their adolescent development. We know that this, age, this time period of adolescence is critical for their development, their healthy development, their long-term um, success in their future and really laying some of that groundwork. It's also an important time for them as parents, for their young children, right? Early childhood and adolescence are those two really critical periods for development. So by focusing on this group, we're really getting to support these young people as they develop in their adolescence, but also as they develop as parents um, and begin to think about how do we break this cycle of intergenerational foster care for families. You know, you also mentioned it's a, it's a critical period right now where we are because of the Family First Prevention Services Act has added in provisions specifically for this group. And, and I know your organizations were, were part of the teams that were helping draft the provision surrounding expecting and, and, prevent, and parenting teams. What did you guys really want to see included in the act? a great question, you know, and we really, I think we worked with a lot of really great partners, um, drafting the legislation, advocates, uh, young people themselves, people on the Hill, um, but we really wanted to help call attention to these young people as a real opportunity, again, to support them as adolescents and as parents, and really thinking about how do you support them in this role without their child needing to come into foster care, right? We, if, if Unless right, their safety concerns, um, but really providing ways to support these young people as parents, um, direct targeted supports and services to them, and prevent their children from having to enter care, taking that sort of targeted approach. I think to, I think that's, Alex makes a great point. I think to add on to that, I think even before there was legislation, when we're really talking just about uh, conceptualization and priorities, um, I think it was important to us that we just ensure that they the young parents and their children in the system are not invisible anymore. They've been invisible, as we both said earlier, for so long. And also because it's a wise investment. Dual development, two generations, you can do prevention and intervention at the same time. It just makes sense. Mm-hmm. And the systems currently aren't serving these young people well, right? We know that the systems are failing to meet the unique needs of these young parents and their children. So really wanted to, as Jeanette was saying, draw attention to this population and support the system in changing its practice for, to better um, support these young people and their children in positive outcomes. So for those states that, like you mentioned, are trying to improve how their systems are are addressing this, and they start to take a look at family first, um, are you guys seeing any sort of common questions from those jurisdictions when they're trying to meet the requirements or trying to improve their services in, uh, in alignment with family first? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, back to Jeanette's point that we made at the very, that she made at the very beginning, it's about understanding who these young people are. 
many states don't even know how many expectant and parenting youth they have in care. So trying to sort of right-size the services and how much of a service they may need to contract for, there's even a big question there. Um, but I do think that, you know, as states are trying to identify who those young people are, and again, some states do that really well, and some states have a sense of who those young people are, they're thinking about, well, what are the specific programs that are really targeted and um, integrated developmental approach, right? So you can have a parenting class, but is that parenting class really developmentally appropriate for young people? And how do we make sure that the evidence-based programs that we're putting in place to support these young people are appropriate? Um, and, and I think in some places, there are a couple of programs in the clearinghouse that do meet that uh, targeted developmental approach for adolescents, but there are, there's a big gap there. There's a gap for um, evidence-based services that are in the clearinghouse and therefore eligible for 4E reimbursement under Family First. Um, so there's a, there's a gap there and a need to start building that evidence. Um, and just one other gap that I really want to point out there is around fathers and young fathers. There's really a gap of evidence-based services around what supports young fathers um, in their parenting or in their mental health um, services. I think just, I think um, in addition to what Alex has mentioned, I think there's a huge um, sort of invisible gap, I would say, which is really the um, sort of introspective analysis and the implicit bias that comes out in, in folks working in the system, both, you know, public and private side, uh, there's still a lot of implicit bias about young parents, right? And I think it it is very gendered. I think there are different expectations mm -hmm. uh, and norms set for, for mothers and fathers. Uh, and I think that's why we see the gap in services for for fathers and some of the stigmatization that we see um, is very moralistically based around young moms. And the systems really do not support young fathers and mothers in trying to parent together, whether they're together or not, right? Whether they're living together or not. Um, the system really drives them apart in ways that are really destructive to the family unit and certainly to the child's, to, to all of their developments, the parents and the children. Yeah, I'm actually gonna to wanna to touch base on that a little bit more as we as we continue on about connecting and, and engaging with this group. But you guys brought up something you know early on about the states having to kind of understand what's in their own backyard of getting the data and understanding the 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 you know just the volume and the differences, right? Uh, when we talk about how many, but it's also who. And everybody has got some sort of, you know, everybody's different. We all are. Uh, at the same time, you know, states can kind of get, um, we're hearing as they're developing their, their prevention plans, some are trying to fit within evidence-based programs. Some are trying to say, hey, I've got something that I know works and I'm going to try to maybe get this approved. And they're balancing this, you know, leveraging of something I know works versus something that's evidence-based. Uh, but you talked about the gap in terms of building evidence. Any guidance you would give for some of these states on, on maybe potentially how to build or how to really you know, sponsor or fund uh, the ability to gather evidence to maybe get some of those programs that they know work to actually get looked at as, as approved within the clearinghouse? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question because this is a, a really a hot topic for us and for states um, and something we're talking to states about all the time, uh, almost daily, I would say, um, because I think it's really it's that intersection between what are the unique needs of families in their community 
And what are the evidence-based practices? And how do you make sure that you're really meeting the needs of families? And that means that your, um, your programs are culturally responsive. They're developmentally uh, targeted and appropriate, right? They fit within your, your state's uh, environment. Um, and that doesn't, al- that doesn't always match with the services that are in the evidence-based clearinghouse. So I think for many states, they're trying to think about how do we finance a comprehensive system where some of our programs are eligible for 4 reimbursement and some of them might not be right now, but they're the right match. And then how do we plan five years down the road to get those services in the clearinghouse? So I think one strategy that we're seeing many states um, explore is financing through the Family First Transition Act, um, which was passed Oh, goodness, last December. Um, It's hard to keep track these days. Um, But it it provides funding to states to be able to prepare for implementation of Family First. And those dollars can be spent rather flexibly. And so we're, we're seeing states start to explore using those dollars to build the evidence for programs that they know work in their communities and meet the needs of their unique families um, and youth. So I think that's one really good um, opportunity uh, and financing stream, uh, honestly, that's available for states as they move towards financing and building the system that is comprehensive and meets all of the unique needs of their families. I think just to add to to what Alexa said, because I think uh, what she describes is what I was also going to say is I think we're in a little bit of a transition period where there's a higher level of sort of awareness about the needs of and the gaps in, and you have, you know, nonprofit funders that have been doing this for some time, but haven't been able to invest in having their programs and services evaluated. So a call for some public-private partnerships and engaging the philanthropic community in working with these organizations and with states and jurisdictions to elevate sort of the evidence that surrounds uh, programs and services that work based on history, anecdotal information, and talking to former uh, clients and consumers. Um, but I think we're, I think it has been such an invisible population in so many ways. Uh, it's going to take some collaborative work to get the to get the sort of bench strength of the services that Alex was describing that is specific and effective, uh, it's gonna take some time to get that up and running. Yeah, absolutely. And the only one thing that you said that I just wanna build off is around hearing the voices of clients who have experienced these services. I think one thing we're seeing states do um, that we would wanna lift up and share for other states to sort of take advantage of is um, they're having focus groups with the, youth who have experienced uh, the system and said, what were services that were helpful and what were services that weren't? Um, It's helping states to also identify some of those really community-based grassroots organizations that may not have, and I'm using quotes here, air quotes, the evidence behind them um, that would get them into the clearinghouse, but youth will tell you what works, right? They know what works and what was supportive and helpful for them. So I think when we're seeing states have these focus groups where they're really asking for the expertise from youth, they're learning really um, important information that can help guide them in developing their comprehensive uh, service array. You know, part of this is, you know, we started to talk about um, family first and we started to talk about we're trying to find the evidence or or using programs that work. And so that's asking uh, states to kind of look around and say, all right, what's out there? Who can you partner with, let's say, to, to help build or demonstrate uh, evidence. But this entire process also should make states and jurisdictions and, and agencies 
look at themselves, kind of reviewing their own capabilities as well, because there are programs that are out there. That's great. Um, but where are you culturally? Where are you in terms of your staff? So if a state or agency wants to spend a little bit more time and energy supporting this group, supporting expecting and parenting teams, you know, first let's start back. And if you guys were able to give some overarching guidance, you know, where where would you want states and, and agencies to kind of start? Well, one of the things that I would say, um, you know, a number of years ago, we did an analysis of state practices um, in terms of placing children with parents who were in care um, and asked them, quite frankly, you know, what, what is the law and what is practice around separating or, you know, really placing a priority on keeping children and their parents together. Um, and the vast majority of states, um, they really believed and were practicing, and this has changed quite a bit in some states, but not in all states. Um, they really were standing in the position of young parents needing to sign their children into care to be placed together, right? Which is, which is as they act as, is not the law, right? Uh, those children are in the custody of their parents, even if their parents are in, in foster care. So I think one is for states to back up a little bit and look at what is their, what is their policy, but also what is their practice uh, as a starting point. Uh, and I think, I think sometimes states forget um, because you know it's just the crush of the work, right? Um, that young parents want the same thing every parent wants for their children. And I think somehow we get um, we forget that. Right, because we see them as a youth in care rather than a parent. Right, they're both. Going back to what Alex said about dual development, I think it's really complex. But I think states ought to start with what is their existing practice and move forward from there. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, starting with what's your existing practice? How are you currently serving youth? Um, understanding what your policies and procedures say. You know, understanding. What your form says when you're play, when you have an expectant or parent uh, or parenting youth in care. What does your form say? What kinds of questions are on that form, that placement form about that, pers that person's uh, child, um, are really important to to think about. Um, and what's your data? Do you have data? Do you have a way of collecting data? Is there a way of um, both having that conversation between a worker and a young person, but also how are you collecting it in your state data system? I think those are also really key key pieces. Um, and when we think about the training for, for frontline staff, how are staff supported in having conversations around healthy development, healthy sexual development, parenting uh, with young people? What does that look like? Is that part of the pre-service or in-service curriculum even? Um, so I think there's the, there's a piece about getting just a baseline organizational assessment that's really critical um, for states as they move forward. What would be some of those key data points that you'd stress the most that a state should, if they're not collecting now or not looking at now, that they should? I mean, I think I would start with the, the basic is, you know, are, people, are these young people, uh, are they pregnant or are they parenting? Um, and when we talk about pregnant, I also mean expected. So are these fathers expected? And But to collect that data, you've got to go back to having conversations around 
healthy, healthy sexual development um, and understanding if these young people are sexually active, um, how do they identify, what is their sexual orientation and gender identity, um, and how do you support these young people more broadly in that development. Um, and I'm certainly not suggesting that you should be collecting data right now around if a youth is sexually active. Uh, should, should workers be having those conversations? Absolutely. Um, and, and we would say you should be collecting data around youth SOGI, their sexual orientation, gender identity, expression, if, if that youth is comfortable sharing that and um, they're the right safety protections in place. But um, Definitely. Definitely. I'm, I'm exclamationing point. <laughs> That Alex just said. I think the other thing that's always confounded me a little bit is, um, you know, if we're, we're talking about young parents, mothers and fathers who are in care, right? So when you become a parent, whether you're young or you're not, bonding and attachment is critical, right? It's absolutely huge. Well, I think it would, it's fair to assume that a good proportion of, I'm being generous, a good proportion of those young parents have their own bonding and attachment issues with their family, with their parents, right? Um, so to not be sort of way ahead of the curve in understanding that young parents who are in care may have difficulty bonding and attaching to their children um, is a mistake. Uh, and I think is, I think people don't really think about that because they assume that because it's child welfare, using air quotes, again, that that's implicit and there's an understanding of the level of trauma. What did it look like? What was the impact? How did it affect their bonding attachment that would create a barrier to their ability to even understand the importance of bonding and attachment in that sort of visceral way that I don't think you can know if you don't have it, right? Um, and being ahead of that, I, I, I think that that's, oftentimes completely missing from case planning, from just the conversations, um, like the kinds that Alec was talking about that we have with young parents. And to expect them to ask those questions when they don't know they don't have it, uh, I think is, is a mistake. And I think we need to figure out how to fill that gap because um, otherwise I think we're missing the boat. And it, and it may be one of the most simple things to solve for, right? Yeah, I mean these are these are basic um, demographics, basic questions. Uh, but there's that barrier of should I move forward and ask? Because I think we're we're also getting back to a question I want to really hone in on about a stigma, um, because you're not looking, or they may not be looking at all right, this is a pregnant uh, young person or they're expecting this is a father to be. Well, let's back up. They're a human being first. And just like you would you know, deal with any child in the system, let's stop back and let's start treating the human first as opposed to, okay, there's a label on you. So now that's the one thing. And let's just focus on, on, on that part now as opposed to the holistic uh, you know, view of, of, of a young person entering life. Um, sticking with the states for, for a second, are you seeing any kind of common strengths or common weaknesses uh, across states? So I think, you know, one of the things we're seeing across states is as a strength um, is the understanding of a need to focus here. Um, and, you know, the states might be in different places in terms of taking action on that and what they do about it. But I do think that there is, there's been a shift over the last few years last, um, around the need to focus on this group and their unique need and that they have unique needs um, and that they serve in, in that different in that 
that role of adolescent and parent. Um, so I think that that's a strength, even just acknowledging um, the needs of, as Jeanette said earlier, this, this population that has been um, invisible for, for a very long time. Um, I think that's a big strength across states. Um, you know, I think some states have taken it further. And as I said before, there some states are collecting data. Some states have um, developed an integrated training around the unique needs of these populations. Some states have, um, they might call it like an expectant or pregnant and parenting unit of workers who work specifically with this population. Um, or they might have a sort of an in-house expert, if you will, that other workers can go to, to, to seek advice. So I think there are a number of strategies that states are trying right now. Um, again, though some, some more so than others and some more effectively than others. So we moved about states' capabilities, what's in their backyard, programs to align with family first. Let's actually talk about the expecting and parenting teens uh, themselves when it comes to working within the system. Um, first off, do you see any, you know, going back to some of the programs, however, in terms of their effectiveness with this group, um, have you seen any types of programs or approaches that maybe across the board have had a little bit more success than others? in reaching and, and engaging this group? Because you mentioned they're, they're also adolescents first, and that's a tough group to reach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Alex talked earlier about, you know, talking to uh, young parents. And I think that programs that engage, I, I guess I'd call near peer, right? So young parents who are a little bit older, right? Or even folks that are in their uh, early 30s, but who were young parents. Uh, I think there's a great deal of success in, you know, connecting them to each other. So what have that what did they learn retrospectively as older mm-hmm. parents, but who were young parents when they had their children? I think there's a um, there's just more openness, I think, to that sort of coaching and mentorship. Uh, I think that that's true. Um, so I think that's one of the things. I, and I think starting uh, the bonding and attachment work really young. We have a, an agency that has a program called Loving Your Baby from the Inside Out. And they start at once they find out they're pregnant um, just to help moms and expected dads to attach to the babies. I mean, understanding, building a relationship, which sounds really basic, but I think is is not always so. If you're, you know, if you're living in very stressful times, it's just harder to, to make that a priority, right? Yeah, I think that peer-to-peer support is really important for young people. Um, We hear that over and over again. And, um, you know, the support of peers who have been through the experience and have um, is really an important support, as Jeanette was saying. Um, A a couple of other programs that I'll just mention that are really designed and targeted um, to young people are uh, the Adolescent Parenting Program, the Young Parenthood Program and Parenting Together Project. And again, those those three programs, just as examples, all really focus on the developmental, uh, meeting youth where they are developmentally and having a more targeted approach to adolescents. Uh, So I think that that's just another, those are a couple of other programs that I would just highlight um, that have taken that approach into into their model. Yeah, for those for those listening, I want to make sure if you head to uh, this episode's webpage, what we will do is we'll put links to those programs uh, on that site so you can uh, go in and take a look at them uh, uh, for yourself. We talked about this, we've danced around it a little bit, but I now want to dive into it about the 
the stigmas and maybe avoiding the stigmas and the labels about expecting and parenting teens. So let's talk to those caseworkers or those supervisors who are, who have those new caseworkers that, that are coming in. What should those caseworkers keep in mind when working with, with these young people, when it comes to being more than just an expecting or parenting young person, but because they are more than that, there's a holistic view. What, do you, what would you want caseworkers to keep in mind? I think, as you just said, really thinking about these young people and their entire identities, right? These aren't just young people who are expecting or parenting, right? Um, they're a lot more and they've got a lot more uh, to them and to their identities and how that those identities intersect to create the person that they are, right? And how they show up and understanding that how they show up is all of that together, right? Thinking about their race, their sexual orientation, their gender identity, um, their culture, how they identify as a student, how they identify as a parent, as a young person. All of that together is shaping how this young person shows up. And so recognizing that they have also, that means needs along all of those different aspects of their identity. They don't just have needs around them as a parent, right? They have needs as an adolescent. They have needs um, across the board. So I think understanding that as it would be number one, right? Understanding how these young people show up. And then I think though, to be a little bit more targeted and understanding that these young people are both adolescents and parents. And what does that mean developmentally for them? How are youth developing in adolescence? How can you integrate and support uh, protective factors? How can you promote those promotive factors that help you thrive? Um, and how do you help them develop those skills as a parent? Um, as Jeanette said earlier, you know, many of these youth in foster care have experienced trauma in some at some point in their life. Um, some of them may not uh, have had those relationships uh, with their own parents that were nurturing. That's I'm not saying that uh, most have. Um, I'm saying just some may not have, right? Um, so really understanding how these youth are showing up and how to support them in in this moment as a young person and, and as a parent, um, I think is important. And I think I, I think in some ways we're saying the same thing, but I th I think that we tend to. Uh, we tend to place, we tend to judge the choices and the decisions that folks make. And I think when we do that without doing what Alex said, which is understanding the full context of their lives, uh, we place, um, you know, it then becomes evaluative and judgmental rather than supportive and nurturing. Right. So if I, yeah, yeah I think that I think that young parents, I think people in general, but I certainly think young parents, you know, they want the best for their children and they make the best choice they can, but it's the best choice they can make of the choices that are available to them. So they could make the best choice that's available to them. And, and those of us here would think, well, that wasn't a very good choice because we have a lot more choices. They don't. So they make the best choice they can. They work really hard at it. They struggle over it. And then we judge that choice without understanding that, they are going through the same process we are. They just don't have as many options. And we can help them increase those options rather than judge the choices that they're making by doing what Alex was describing. You know, I'd kick myself if I'd only focus on the caseworkers and not also pay a little attention to the guidance or advice or make specific trainings, if there are some, for the foster parents and the resource parents and their ability to support this group. Anything... I mean, clearly, 
if you're if you if you've been a parent before and now you have a, a young person in your home and they are going through kind of everything that goes through being an, an expecting parent. Um, but is there anything specific that you would want to make sure that those foster parents are are ready for, prepared for, or trained for that may be different than what they'd normally go through in their routine training? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think for those for those foster parents, um, really understanding the youth's development as an adolescent and as a parent, and understanding their experiences and how they may be entering into this time in their life differently than the foster parent would have because of a number of circumstances is really important. Um, and having a foster parent who wants to affirm that young person in their own adolescent development and as a parent, right? And really be a support to them. Um, in some states, what they have done is develop sort of special recruitment and criteria for foster parents of expectant and parenting youth so that those foster parents are really dedicated um, to supporting young young parents, um, which is great. And they, they do have some additional training um, to support them in that way. Um, so I think that those are really those examples where, um, states have been able to target and really support foster parents and then place those youth with those foster parents is great. Obviously there's always a question about, do you have enough foster parents for the number of youth? Or what if you don't know a youth that is uh, pregnant or a youth becomes pregnant in a foster home and you want to keep them stable? You want to make sure that, um, that foster parent gets the training at that point to be able to support that young person as they, um, enter into parenthood. I really, and I really think everything we said for caseworkers goes for foster parents, perhaps even more so because of their proximity and their relationship. I also think it's important for um, foster parents to understand their own motivation, right, for wanting to parent a young parent and their child or children, um, just to ensure that it's really a commitment to building the strength of the parent-child unit. Um, because I think, you know, a lot of people want to work with ba babies, right? Not adolescents. And so there cannot, there can sometimes be this dynamic that happens when a young parent, I think, enters a uh, foster placement with their child. Um, it could be shortcut by the kinds of trainings and certifications that Alex was talking about, but also just some introspection around I, what I really want to do is support this parent to be the best parent they can be. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes I think the focus is on the child and that's not necessarily positive for the parent-child unit. Yeah. Yeah. So we started this talking about the awareness, the awareness of this population and, and, and the need to focus on it. So that at least gets the conversation moving, maybe with a lot more momentum. So let's talk about maybe what's next. Um, what do you see is maybe the, the next steps in evolution of services uh, to support expecting and parenting teens? Good question. <laughs> All right, let's, fo let's focus it this way. You have your druthers. The big blank check, blue sky, you know, all the barriers are gone. Um, what would you want to see in terms of improvement for either services or, or just maybe the, the, the structural or mental approach that agencies may take? So I think I would start off by going back to that organizational assessment that we talked about 
and thinking about how do you use that organizational assessment to change the way that your system is organized to serving expected and parenting youth, right? So if your trainings are not do not include adolescent development and uh, you know supporting the unique needs of expected and parenting youth, how do you integrate that, right? How do you change that into all of your trainings? Not just one course that you offer that some workers might might attend, right? How do you really integrate it and embed it into all your training for your frontline workers and for your foster parents? Um, when you look at taking a look at your policies that you're reviewing and saying, what are our policies actually saying and how do we support those policies in practice? So to not just say, what are our policies around placing a young person um, and their child? What are our policies say and what does our practice say? And how do we align practice and policy with best practice nationally, right? And what we know the research tells us young people and their children need to thrive. Um, I would think about your data system, right? Thinking about is your data system designed to collect this information and uh, building that out as, as, as you're also building out the skills of your workers to be able to collect that data. Um, and then thinking about do you have the right supports and services in your system that are targeted and meet the developmental and unique needs of this population. Um, and if you do, great, let's make sure the capacity matches the need. Um, but if you don't, how do you build that? How do you build that those services? How do you uh, learn from what's working grassroots and bring that up to a point where uh, youth can really access it and you're making those connections to support um, young people? I would like to see... Uh massive investment in getting more programs and services to be considered evidence-based. And, and so resources could be used in them because I think a lot of the smaller programs are actually run by and started by former young parents or young parents. So there we're missing, you know, we're missing that wealth of knowledge and expertise that ought to be part of the continuum of supports and services that Alex is talking about and left to their own devices, it's just very, very difficult to make the kind of investment that's needed um, to get your program to be to, to be labeled, evidenced, promised, promising. Uh, it's a long process, and I think it's going to take some some hopefully federal leadership, but also work on the state level, and probably hand in hand with philanthropy to get that done. But I think that's pretty critical because um, I think it has to be a private public partnership. And I think the other thing is that I think we also need to focus on those efforts being more comprehensive. So not just pregnant, not just parenting, right? Parenting skills, but also economic security, um, you know, health disparities and health outcomes. I mean, sort of the whole, we're breaking a number of cycles. We have the opportunity to break, break a number of cycles when we work with the unfairness, educational outcomes. So not only increase sort of the, the more narrow focus on parenting, but broaden that to include how do you really help families get stable over the long term versus help them through these stages of parenting, which is very critical and important. But, you know, over the long term to really break the cycles, we need to be more comprehensive, I think. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. right. I need a job. I need, I need a lot of things. Um, yeah, stable housing, all those things. Jeanette and Alex, uh, and for everybody listening, I want to make sure that uh, I will put links on to for CSSP and for National Crittenden here on the uh, on, on the webpage for this episode. Um, Jeanette and Alex, I truly appreciate your time. Uh, to, to spend the time to dive into this and obviously all the work that went into 
everything that was that brought us to this conversation in helping you know put this uh, in the forefront for families first and to as we just talked about maybe moving uh, the resources services mindset uh, to, to to the next level uh, folks I really appreciate your time I appreciate your energy um, and thank you guys so much for being a part of the child welfare information gateway podcast thank Thanks you for we mentioned a few times we'll post a number of resources on this episode's webpage, and you can find all the Information Gateway podcast episodes on Child Welfare Information Gateway at childwelfare.gov. We'll have links to the programs Alex mentioned, along with links out to some additional resources from the Center for the Study of Social Policy, including an FAQ for pregnant and parenting youth and Family First as well. So that's along with a resource guide that they'll have for programs that meet the needs of expectant and parenting youth and their children. We'll also point you to the other episodes we've launched surrounding Family First, including the Family First Implementation Guide, developed by a group of organizations uh, along with the episodes sharing the experiences and tips learned from Washington, D.C.'s Child and Family Services Agency and the Utah Division of Child and Family Services, two agencies whose Title IV-E prevention plans have already been submitted and approved by the Children's Bureau. Hey, please subscribe to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and SoundCloud. More than 34 hours of interviews, innovations, experiences, and stories to share to help you and your team improve the lives of children, youth, and families. Hey, thanks so much to Alexandra Citrin and Jeanette Pai Espinoza for joining us. And thanks to you for being a part of this community. And please stay safe out there. I'm Tom Oates. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.